continuing a sermon of the book right now where Peter is impressing upon us how important it is that we live holy lives. So he's just said that since we have been bought by the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish and defect, rescued from the empty way of life that was handed down to us from our forefathers, he says, then we are to be holy just as God himself is holy. And today, we're looking specifically of the holy life as it relates to the Christian and government. <laughs> kind of appropriate given with pre- presidential uh, election coming up here shortly. And so the first half of the sermon, what I want to do is talk about submission to government. Then in the second half of the sermon, I want to talk about disobedience to government, and that's the part of the sermon that I'm going to get in trouble with. We're going to talk about civil, civil disobedience in the second half, and um, you know, don't get too mad at me, but oh boy. First Peter 2.11, dear friends, I urge you, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which Wage war against your souls. Remember, we can never be reminded enough that our souls are the most important parts of us. The one thing that you have as part of yourself today, it's going to be around a billion years from now, is not your pinky finger or your big toe. But it is this thing that Peter says, is there's a war going on for this thing called your soul. The soul, and it's, it's a word that's just notoriously difficult to define, but the soul, we talk about it as the immaterial portion of your being, which, that's a weird way of putting it, it the center of you. The soul is what ties all of you together, it ties your mind, your will, your emotions all together. It's the most essential part of you. And isn't it interesting, Peter says there's a war going on for this eternal part of you, a part of you that's never going to cease to exist. And it's fought over our sinful desires. Verse 12. And the second thing says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This would have been especially significant for the first century Christians because the pagans accused them of all manner of things. Our early Christian brothers and sisters were accused of being cannibals. Why do you think that is? Because they ate the body and blood of somebody or they purported to do so. They were accused of being incestuous because they married brothers and sisters. And they were accused of being of holding orgies, because every Sunday they would have a love feast or an agape feast, which was another name for the, the meal. But they were misunderstood. They were slandered by the pagan pagans of the day. And Peter says, what I want you to do is live such a conscientiously law-abiding, obedient life that all of those false accusations will be clearly shown to be false on the day that Jesus Christ Returns And it says, he says that they will glorify God. That is, they will say on that day, God was right in, uh, in choosing you and justifying you and saving you. And all of those accusations were a load of falsehood. Verse 13. So here's the government section. Submit yourselves 
for the Lord's sake, to every authority instituted among men, whether to the emperor, who is the supreme authority, or to governors, remember who was a governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate, submit to governors, who are sent by God to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should, here he says it again, silence the ignorant talk of foolish men and women. Live as free men and women, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Instead, live as servants, literally live as slaves of God. So you're free, but you're enslaved to God. And then he says 17, show proper respect to everyone. That is, love the brotherhood and sisterhood of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. Hmm. So today I want us to talk about the Christian's relationship to government because that's the thrust of this passage. And it's, uh, there aren't a lot of passages like this in the Bible, so it does give me an opportunity to talk on something which I rarely would get an opportunity otherwise. That is, submission to government and civil disobedience. How do you go about this? Well, I thought the best way would be to start by examining the distance between their situation in the first century and our situation today. Because there's a massive gulf, isn't there? Between first century Roman Empire and 21st century Western Democratic Republic. And I thought, well, if we could just have a feel, an understanding of the distance between the two, that might actually help us come up with wise applications of the passage for our lives today. So let's start out with the distance. Here's the beginning of it. Idahoans fear too much government. By and large, that's what we're afraid of. Is there's so in my street uh, in Meridian, there's a flagpole in somebody's yard, and at the top of the flagpole is the red, white, and blue Old Faithful flying in the breeze. Well, the flag right underneath it, it's not the POW flag you sometimes see underneath the American flag. It is a yellow flag with a coiled-up rattlesnake, you know it, and the word stenciled on the bottom, don't tread on me, which is the flag of libertarians, at least commonly associated with libertarianism. And if you think about it, Idaho, we definitely have a very libertarian spirit about us. Even if you don't even know what the word libertarian or what that political philosophy is, we, we are afraid of too much government, government being too big, too intrusive, too bureaucratic. Well, in some sense, that's the exact opposite of what they feared in the first century. We fear too much government. They fear too little. And the reason is because life was so dangerous back then. And the need for government, for a stable government to protect you and keep you from dying by the hands of the barbarian hordes. I mean, every, these little regions that they're in, they're always on the precipice of anarchy and bloodshed. Government was the only way to ensure some kind of public order would exist. It was the only way that you would have a semi-reliable justice system. And it was the only way that you would have any public defense, so to speak. So uh, when we talk about the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, It ain't the Pax Romana for nothing. It really did bring a peace and stability to the lives of people in the first century that they 
their quality of life was considerably better because they were part of the Roman Empire than if they were just out on the islands of civilization. Do you remember who was the emperor at the time that Peter writes this letter? Anybody? It was, it was Nero. So we think Peter wrote this about 64 AD. In 64 AD, Nero was beginning his spiral into insanity, which was consummated in 68 AD when he ended up committing suicide. In 64 AD, Nero's on the throne, and he sees a beautiful chunk of 300 acres over here in Rome, which would be a perfect site for his imperial palace. The only problem is that it's occupied by a bunch of of tenants. So what Nero did is he secretly ordered the burning of this, this parcel of land so that he could, probably through eminent domain, seize it later on. Well, what ends up happening is that the fire, right, it just it goes gangbusters, and it burns the city of Rome for five days straight. It ended up burning down like seven different, I forget what they call them, it's not provinces, but districts in the city of Rome. And who did Nero blame for the burning of Rome? He blamed us. He blamed Christians. Can you just imagine then how, how strange it would be if you're a first century Christian to hear the words, honor the emperor, <laughs> submit to the maniacal dictator who is going to end up persecuting you and has falsely claimed that you're the ones who ended up burning down the city. It, that would be pretty stunning news on Sunday morning. And yet that's what Peter does. And here's one of the reasons why. Peter tells us to submit to government authorities because it's better than having no authorities at all. If you have any doubt of that fact, look what's happened in the Middle East over the last five years with the so-called Arab Spring. Look what's happened when you've taken out a maniacal dictator. This power vacuum exists. And into this power vacuum flows terrible sectarian violence and brutality such that in Iraq, in uh, Libya, in Syria today, I mean, a regular citizen can barely live. What The reason the Bible teaches that we're to submit to all forms of government is because even bad government is better than no government. Even Nero is better than anarchy. Uh, What I think, so moving on, I think one of the things that Peter is very concerned about is he doesn't want the early Christians to be revolutionaries. You could understand why early Christianity would tend to attract a person of a certain bent, Early Christianity is a radical departure from anything that had ever come before. You can see how just this little, maybe revolutionary movement would attract people who think it's a really great idea for us to overthrow Rome. And Peter wants to say to these early Christians, we're not going to do that. We're not going to be Che Guevara or or Vladimir Lenin. We're not going to toss the... Is the proletariat the bourgeoisie? I always forget. <laughs> we're not going to take up arms and try to topple the Roman government, even though there were a large number of Jews in the first century who wanted to do that very thing. No, Peter says, we are going to be the most upright, law-abiding, conscientious citizens that the empire has ever known. So he gives four reasons for doing so. And I want to lay these out just really quickly here. 
Four reasons why we ought to submit to government authorities. Number one, because all government has been appointed by God. Verse 13, submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted, governmental authority instituted in men, whether it be the emperor or to the, as the supreme authority or to governors. And then he has this very uh, idealistic statement as a broad generalization. Well, I'll get to that in number two. Never mind. Um, but he says, you're to, God has appointed every form of government. Which even Roman governors, even Roman governors of Judea who end up crucifying the Lord whom we worship. God has appointed even enemies of God to to, to rule, and, and that's why when you disobey these human governmental authorities, you're ultimately rebelling against God himself because he's appointed them. He stands above them all. So that's number one. All forms of government have been appointed by God. Number two, and this is what is said in the second half of verse 14, government is just common grace by God given to human beings so that we would through it have justice, order, and civility in a country. And this goes back simply to the doctrine of human sinfulness and human depravity. What we know is that uh, without the threat of punishment, (laughs) without the threat of the sword, people are so wickedly sinful in their hearts that they will do whatever it takes to advance their own self-serving purposes. And even if that means harming other people to serve their own self-interest, Government is there to keep that from happening, to punish the wrongdoer, he says, and to incentivize good and orderly behavior. That's number two. Number three. Number three is really an overall biblical principle that comes from the, especially from the Old Testament. When God's people end up submitting to even pagan rulers and governors, good things can happen and often do happen. So you think of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, or Cyrus, king of Persia. In the past, when God's people submitted to those pagan authorities and promoted the good of the city that they were living in, tried to promote peace and harmony in the cities that they lived in, God ended up blessing them and and doing great things. And that can happen even when Nero's on the throne, so to speak. Fourthly, the fourth reason to submit to government, I'm going through these quick, I know, but the fourth reason to submit to government is to silence the accusations of ignorant and malicious people. It was extremely important for these little groups of Christians to fly under the radar of the government, of the governors in, in that day. You would not want to draw unnecessary attention to yourselves, especially because you were part of a religion that was not an official religion. You were part of an illegal religion. Unlike Judaism, early Christianity was considered a cult in the empire. And you, uh, they were, Christians were looked at with extreme suspicion, such that you get these um, myopic accusations of cannibalism and incestuous relationships and orgies because they were looked at and regarded with such an extreme suspicion. And so by being law-abiding citizens, you would be able to fly under the radar And if anybody ever accused you of anything, you would be able to say it's not true. It's absolutely not true. In fact, 
at the end of the first century, one of the first spokesmen of, for Christianity to the surrounding world after the time of the apostles was a guy by the name of Justin Martyr. What Justin Martyr does at the end, is either at the end of the first century or beginning of the second century, is he writes a letter to the Roman authorities. Because the Christians of his day were being accused, he writes a letter to the Roman authorities and says, investigate us. Go ahead, take a look, because there's absolutely nothing to these charges. We obey the laws because God tells us to obey the laws. And if you find any Christian among us who isn't obeying the laws, then they should be punished because that's not the official teaching of our church. Which leads to number five, and this is the very last one. You are to honor the emperor, which is a very different attitude than many Americans have uh, toward our civil government. Isn't that true? You know, instead of treating our government as servants of God who are worthy of honor, at least the office is worthy of honor, many Americans and many Christian Americans treat our rulers as open targets of mockery, ridicule, and scorn. Peter says, no, you're not, you're not to talk nasty about the president or your senator or your congressman. You can criticize their policies, absolutely, but you need to honor their office because the office has been appointed by God and the office is worthy of reverential Honor. All right, then here's where I want to go. The bottom line of First Peter chapter 2 is you're to obey the laws. Even the dumb laws, even the bad laws, probably every single one of us has something to repent of, of laws that we have broken within the last <laughs> seven days or the last month. We break Speed limits, don't we? We, we don't wear our seatbelts. We park in fire lanes. We break copyright laws. We, there are all kinds of things that we do that is not really submitting to the authorities that God has, has put over us. You may think it's an absolutely ridiculous thing that, and I think it is, that, that you're old enough to go off and die for your country in Afghanistan, but you're not old enough to drink a margarita uh, in downtown Boise. I, but bro, that's the laws. You may think it's completely absurd that you can cross a state line, go to uh, Colorado and, and smoke pot, but you can't do that in Idaho. But, but that's the laws. God wants us to obey the laws, you know, period, end of sentence. Except there are instances where we are justified in disobeying the laws, and that's where, that's where we should go next. Um, the Bible has a long history of justified civil disobedience. What do we mean by that, justified civil disobedience? Uh, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the Old Testament are told to bow down and worship the image of Nebuchadnezzar, what do they do? They say, forget it. We must obey God and not men. When Daniel is told to stop praying to, to Yahweh and to start praying to the king of Persia, what is, what is, he's like, forget it. I must obey God and not men. When, um, when Peter himself is commanded by the Jewish authorities to stop preaching in the name of Jesus Christ, 
He says, go pound sand, because <laughs> I, I can't do that. And those are the well-known instances of civil disobedience in the Bible. And the, the conclusion that most Christians, I think every Christian has re- reached, is this. That civil disobedience is justified when what you're commanded to do by the earthly law contradicts what you're commanded to do by God's law. Civil disobedience is justified when... When the government commands you to sin, all of us agree on that point, or at least we ought to <laughs> agree on that point, because that, it's, it's clearly the case. The real question, and this is what we wrestle with, the real question is that the only instance that civil disobedience is, uh, is legitimate. Um, and I... I think the answer that I would give to that question is no. I think if those are the lines you draw, you've drawn them too narrowly. Why do I say that? Well, for one reason, Peter himself broke out of jail. Peter broke out of jail with the help of an angel. <laughs> and, and Peter, he fled as a fugitive. You know, he, he's fly, fleeing throughout the empire. I'm sure there were plenty of laws that said that you're not allowed to flee as a fugitive, that that you should stay in jail even if you aren't, uh, even if you were falsely accused. You should stay in jail and you should have your case tried in a, in a legitimate court of law. But Peter never turned himself in. And neither did David when he was fleeing from King Saul. He never turned himself in. Even though there was a law in the books that said, thou shalt not flee from the king. Nevertheless, he never, he didn't turn. I think there are even other instances where the lines for civil disobedience turn out to be a little bit broader. This, do you realize this is the debate that's really taking place in the 1960s between Martin Luther King Jr. and and the white clergy like myself? How many of you have read a letter from Birmingham jail? The people that he is criticizing are the guys like me, the so-called white moderates who say to Dr. King and say to the movement, Dr. King, we are very sympathetic with, with your cause, but we disagree entirely with your methods. Dr. King, don't you know that there are noise ordinance laws in the city of Birmingham that say that you can't cause a public disturbance by getting on this loudspeaker? Or don't you know, Dr. King, that there are traffic laws that have to be obeyed and you can't blockade a, a, a city street? Don't you know that you can't perform sit-in, sit, sit-ins in a, a local establishment of business, uh, they were breaking all kinds of laws. And if you, if you draw the lines for civil disobedience so narrowly, like most of the white clergy did, then you had no, there was no basis for what Dr. King was doing. Him in his own words, he says to the white moderates, I must make two honest confessions to you, my brothers. First, I must confess that over the past few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white councilman or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. Who constantly says that I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action. 
who paternalistically believes that he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by a mythical concept of time and who constantly advises the Negro to wait for a more convenient season? No, shallow understanding from people of goodwill such as yourselves is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding by people of ill will. Another instance of this, Martin Niemuller. Anybody recognize that name? Niemuller, 1940s, Nazi-controlled Germany. Niemuller was a pastor in the state church, the state German Lutheran church. And he's best known for the quote. You remember this quote? First they came for the socialists, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I didn't speak out because I wasn't a trade unionist. Then they came for the, for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak out for me. Well, Martin Niemuller's very first act of civil disobedience was early in the game, when the Nazis had not really played their cards down. You didn't quite know exactly what they were trying to do. The, the Nazis were very much buddy-buddy with the, the German Lutheran church. And so what they did is they went to the pastors of the church and they said, we, it's important for us to have German citizens pastoring the churches. It's important for us to have, to have good Aryan men pastoring the churches today. So what we'd like you to do is please just submit the paperwork that we have put before you to demonstrate your German citizenship and to demonstrate your Aryan heritage. Just fill the, fill the little bubble in on the census form. It says, I'm Aryan, and show us your birth, your birth certificate. Just and Niemöller said, forget it. I'm not going to do that. Now, I would ask you this question. Was it a sin is it a sin to, to mail in requested documentation to by your government? Does following that law make you sin? Well, probably not. Is it a sin to obey traffic laws and, and not walk, march down a street? Is it a sin to obey the laws that say you can't disrupt a place of business while they are... Well, no. I mean, obeying those laws... Those are not, that's not sin. But when you, again, draw the lines of civil disobedience so narrowly, it leaves you with very little room then to do anything about it. And even today, the Christians who oppose the marches and the sit-ins and the activists, they argued and continue to argue that Christians shouldn't be involved in any form of protest. Because Peter wasn't involved in any form of protest. He said you're supposed to submit to the authorities. I even listened to a sermon this week by a very respected, um, a very respected preacher who I love, and I won't tell you his name. But he went on to make the point from this passage that, that, that Peter never advocated anything political whatsoever. Peter was never out there distributing uh, pamphlets for the local political candidate in the district of Bithynia. Peter never did. Of course he didn't. No, Peter never organized a sit-in because if he tried to do that, he would have been immediately hauled off to jail. There would, Christianity wouldn't have survived. No, Peter, Peter never did picket a, a slave market in the city of Charleston. Peter never did write a letter to the editor decrying the English Stamp Act. Peter never did 
protest outside a Planned Parenthood facility. And what a lot of guys think is because he didn't do it and they didn't do it, we shouldn't do it either. And that's wrong. At least that's a way overly simplistic reading and applying of this passage. Just because they didn't do it doesn't mean that actual biblical faithfulness wouldn't mean for us to do it. Again, our default position should be obedience to the law, submission to the state. I totally agree with Augustine who said centuries ago that for us to basically submit to sinful bad rulers is actually quite good for us because it teaches us humility. For us to submit and listen to a human being as weak and sinful as ourselves is good for our souls. That's the default position of the Christian life. But I'm convinced, the more I've thought about this, that in our circles we don't give enough credence to civil disobedience. I'll give you one real-world example we'll be done with it. True story. Let's say you and your wife and your two kids 20 years ago flee from a village in the remote parts of Honduras. Honduras. Bloodthirsty, corrupt, lawless, impoverished beyond our wildest, uh, worst imaginations. Honduras. 20 years ago, you, your wife, and your two kids flee Honduras for a better life in America, and you enter into the United States of America as an illegal. You go directly to California. You start picking fruit and produce in the fields of California during the day, grueling 14, 15-hour days, beginning before sunrise, and then at night you end up going to the local junior college, and you, you get a GED through the local junior college. You've been in the United States for 20 years, and, and sometime in, that, in the later part of those years, you end up getting saved. You end up going to a local Baptist church where for the first time in your life, you hear the gospel. I mean, previously, you were a totally nominal Roman Catholic living in the villages of, of Honduras. But you go to the church, you hear the gospel, you believe you are saved, and then you're, for the first time in your life, you're actually taught what the Bible says. And you come to this passage, as difficult as this passage could be, or the parallel passage in Romans 13, and you read that you, an illegal alien in the United States of America, must submit to the authorities. What do you do? You're, you're a new believer. You desperately want to obey the word of God. What do you do? Do you go back? Do you leave, what if you have three kids while you, once you move to America? So there's five kids, three of whom are United States citizens, and two of whom are not, which was the case in this true story. Do you, do you leave your three here, and you and your wife and your two kids go back? Do you, do you go back? You know you're never going to make it back. I mean, unless, unless you're a high-powered lawyer, or unless you've got a lot of money, you're not going to make it through the red tape. Uh, you're never going to get back. What do you do? What do you do if... You're a church that started an English as a second language program. You know, there are a lot of churches that have done that. I guarantee you that if, you, if we start an ESL program at All Saints, we don't have any plans to do so, but man, that would be kind of cool. Um, I guarantee you, you will get undocumented, undocumented people, illegal aliens. Who, once you find that out, what do you do? Jorge and Selena 
and their three adorable little kids right here, do you turn them into the authorities? If there's a law in the books that say you're not allowed to drive an illegal anywhere in the city and you're busing them into your ESL program, which is what one of these churches was doing, do you turn them in? Your brother and sister in Christ. I don't know. <laughs> I, it's, my point is that there's, there's tremendous complexities, obviously, about life in our world. I do not have for you this comprehensive criteria that tell you when civil disobedience is justified and, and when it is not. We need, desperately need, the wisdom of the Holy Spirit to know what, how do we properly respond to pastoral and real-world issues like this. Uh, so I don't know. I, I do respect the brother and sister who say, yes, I'll go back to Honduras. And I do respect the brother and sister who say, no, I'm not, I'm not going back. Um, even if you think that they should go back, and I bet you most Idahoans would say, yeah, they should just, they should go back. Do you feel it all? Do you feel the, the tension, the pain, the toil, the, the difficulty? It's at the end of the day, the reason that the Romans ended up persecuting the first Christians was not because they said, Jesus is the Lord of my heart. I got a mansion up in the sky that's entirely spiritual, and Jesus is just, the, he's the Lord of my heart. The reason they got persecuted is they said, Jesus is Lord, and Caesar is not, and therefore, we're going to do something about that. God give us wisdom to know how we do something about that. Amen.